really frustrates me because you're you're doing a, a disservice to that insulation as well because then it loses its properties and in really bad cases if you're on a freezer room you'll get ice nuts every cable tie because that in insulation is compromised um which looks bad but it also you know gives uh, heat back to the suction vapor as well at cool air products we developed ac smart seal quick shot with professionals in mind it's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant lubricant and uv dye all in a single application it's non-toxic non-flammable 100 percent safe to the touch eco-friendly and compatible with all refrigerants it's a safe solution option backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. All right, so I picked up my first round of tools from the Master Group so I can demo for you guys. And the Vito Tech Pack is one of them. And, and I'm sort of, I'm gravitated towards it for some reason. I know that taking load off of a tool pouch is very important and a lot of techs are starting to do this but one of my apprentices is carrying around a backpack the tech pack and i'm just looking at it from the perspective of having it on two shoulders instead of one because when i carry my pouch it's on one shoulder and it it just gives you that kind of lean you know what i mean and, and you're kind of compensating on the one side so i'm just wondering if a backpack would help I think it would to, to even the load across your shoulders and your back and your legs and everything. So I'm going to be diving a little bit more into that bag in a bit, but the master group gave it to me on loan just for the demo. We'll see if we can maybe pull the trigger on get, getting one. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Anyway, thank you to the master group for sponsoring the podcast. Let's get to it. Hey, what's up guys? I'm right now behind a walk-in box. Every maintenance here, I do a walk around the back of the box to make sure that there's no moisture building up. There, there are some fans here actually that blow down in between the box and the wall because they built the box maybe, I don't know, about three or four feet off the outside wall. So they have some fans that blow down here to ventilate that area so we don't have any buildup of moisture. And every once in a while I walk back here and check some things. So. It kind of goes hand in hand with what we're gonna talk about today with John Broughton from Danfoss. We're gonna talk cold rooms slash walk-in boxes depending which part of the world you're from is dependent on the term you're gonna use. Now, we did this through Zoom because John is in uh, England overseas and because of that, we did it through Zoom and the audio is not always the best when you do mobile sort of uh, interviews that way. But anyway, the information is good right and we're gonna get into this right now with John Broughton from Dan Foss on cold rooms slash walk-in boxes this is the HVAC know-it-all podcast I'm your host Gary McCready welcome to the HVAC know-it-all podcast recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto Canada your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC. From storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. John, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's end of the day here in the UK, so uh, I'm just waiting for you know spring to arrive. It's a bit chilly at the moment. 
Yeah, um, no, it's 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 chilly here. We're actually above zero. We're at, we're above freezing today. We're at about we said we it said on the weather we had about a high of seven degrees C today, which is about I don't know forty two ish, forty three ish, maybe degrees Fahrenheit, something in that range. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're we're, um, we're we're starting to turn the corner a little bit. And I I looked at the weather next week, and we're supposed to be um, quite mild with rain, so it should get rid of all this snow. Yeah, sounds good. I think they promised us some snow for Sunday again, which is nice. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Never we'll, mind. We'll, get, we'll, we'll get to spring and summer at, at, at some point, but um, I guess this conversation doesn't revolve around keeping things warm. It revolves around keeping things cool. And, and we're going to talk about cold rooms, as you guys like to refer to them, I, I guess, over on the other side of the pond, and, and we call them walk-in boxes over here. So I guess when we're, we're talking cold rooms, just so the audience over in North America knows, we're actually talking about walk-in boxes, just kind of an interchangeable term, term, right? Yes. Yeah, correct. Awesome. So, I mean, sizing and, and duty of a, of a cold room. So that, that's sort of the first topic we're going to focus on here. So how would we go about sizing one of these? And then, and then the duty, I'm, I'm guessing for, from the notes you sent over, duty meaning operation, right? Yeah, duty as in the required capacity for your walking, okay. for your cauldron. Gotcha. And generally what, what I see when I'm around, I mean, you know, there's, there's various bits of software. Obviously, there's Danfoss Cold Selector software, which has a, a basic cauldron selection program in, so you can do your sort of basic duty calculation and then go on to select your components but what i see when i'm sort of out in the field probably the same as you is that you'll come across a, a cold room stroke walk-in that is uh you know has too much product in for the actual refrigeration duty that it's trying to uh, that it's trying to work with um so some of the basics seem to be missing in that they'll have a they'll they'll have a walk-in that is, you know, three meters by three meters by two and a half, try to convert that to three to feet, which is sort of 10 foot by 10 foot by, what's that, eight feet, something like that. And it might have a duty of a couple of kilowatts or something like that. Um, but then there's so much product in there that it just doesn't have the right duty for, you know, what it's trying to do. So the thing struggles, uh, which seems to be more common than it should be, I think. Yeah. And, and, and if, if you don't mind, I want to jump in there because I've been on service calls where we'll get a spike in a, in a, in a cooler. And, and, and I want to bring this up for other people that might be responding to the same sort of calls. And, and this particular client, they actually, when, when they load it up, they actually put a note on the, the skid of when they, they loaded it up. And this in particular cooler was for um, just ice packs. That's, that's all it is. Nothing, nothing crazy. Just ice packs that go into boxes when they ship to keep the product cold. Mm -hmm. So, so what they do is they'll, they'll take two or three skids of, of warm ice packs, put it into the cooler and then the, the temperature spikes and, and I get there. And, and it's still warm. And then I go in and I see these notes and I'm like, yeah, you guys just put these in an hour ago. No, no wonder. And it's too many. Um, yeah. And I always say to them, I said, picture, picture it this way. Take, take a, a refrigerator at home and get it down to temperature. Okay. It's empty. And then go to the, go to the store 
um, and buy three or four cases of beer and leave it outside for a while and then go shove it in that refrigerator and see what happens to the temperature. It, it's not going to be able to, to withstand it because you're putting way too much load in there too fast. And that's what I find a lot. Um, people just don't know how to load it up to, to the capacity of the, uh, of the cooler or the walk-in box. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the other challenge, I guess, is from the end user point of view where they'll go to a contractor and say, you know, I'd, I'd like a cold room. Uh, it's got to work at this temperature. I want it this big. And generally you would size that. So the product maybe comes in a couple of degrees above the storage temperature. And he comes in, as you say, and puts in a whole load of warm chickens, for example. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just not doing what it should be doing. But it wasn't designed for that. So I think there's this mismatch between end user and the contractor not understanding what the other are doing. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I find a lot of. Um, or, or you'll physically go to the cold room and you can't physically get in it because it's rammed full of products right to the door. Um, again, it, it's never going to work. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. So, so how do we go up? about about sizing to, to make sure do we have to obviously you brought up a um a program that we can do some calculations on but i guess we need to know what sort of product they're going to be putting in and, and how much loading on a, on a daily basis and stuff is is that do we have to take that into account yeah i mean basically there are many default um cold room selection softwares where it will calculate with a wizard function and that that's what it does in the danfoss software is that you choose your size of cold room, you, you choose your product that you're storing in there, and then the, the wizard function within that will say, okay, that needs to be at 34F, for example. Uh, and within that physical size, you will be able to store a certain amount of product. And that's done by the wizard function, um, which then gives you a refrigeration duty and then selects the product. Or you can go back to first principles and say, okay, the cold room is, is this big. The insulated panels are, you know, so thick. They're made out of polyurethane or whatever. And you can calculate your whole refrigeration duty from first principles, including the product load. I think there is a challenge between the word walk-in box slash cold room and then things like a blast freeze, blast chill, where you take a certain amount of product and you take it from ambient or 25 degrees C or, you know, kill temperature down to a storage temperature. And to me, that's not a walk-in or a cold room. That's an actual, that, that, that is a process chiller. Um, yeah. and, and that also is a bit of a challenge within the industry because people say, I want a cold room. Well, actually, you don't really want a cold room. You want a process chiller. Um, so I think those are the challenges as well. And then the other you know, biggest challenge, I guess, is if you like those ice packs, um, you know, to actually chill that water down to ice, you've got to have a good heat exchange between the product and the air. And if it's wrapped in, um, as we do in this country, I guess the same, you wrap the pallets in like a, a plastic film. Yep. You are immediately excluding that heat transfer from the product yeah um, good point you know so there's there's all those sorts of challenges as well yeah good good point 
So then going on to, to, to matching up the Evap and condenser, how do we go about doing that? Is that, is that through a program as well to, to make sure that we're matching properly? Yeah, I mean, in the, the old-fashioned way, which uh, I'm getting a bit old now, when I was a contract engineer, you'd, you'd go back to first principles. So you do your balance graph between the capacity of the condensing unit, example, and the capacity of the cooler, and you'd find out where that match point was and that would give you your capacity and also your temperature difference between evaporating and air off of the coil. So you'd see exactly what you were getting. But nowadays, all that's done via software, um, which is fine. But I, I still challenge software is only as good as the people who actually use it. So you've got to know what you're doing. Otherwise, if you put rubbish in, you get rubbish out almost. Mm -hmm. And is that software the same as the the sort of sizing your box dimensions and stuff is it or a different software um we don't have uh such a software gary because we don't do the evaporators whereas oh, okay. the downforce we do the convention it's the uh compressors okay. Okay. um so yeah generally if you talk to a evaporator manufacturer they will have a software where you can put in the data for the condensing unit or uh, and, and that will do you a match but i think it's very good practice to actually learn the first principles of it so you know what you're doing mm -hmm. yeah no it makes sense and and as far as the the evaporator portion of that we're defining the the evap temp during operation i think for a lot of people that understand air conditioning or just mainly focus on air conditioning they don't understand sort of um, a running evaporator temperature of of a of a refrigeration system. So how do we define those in different sort of applications like high temp, medium temp, low temp? Mm, I think it, it's more to do with the product that we're actually storing in that room and what humidity gotcha. you actually want in that room. Okay. Um, if you want, if you're storing, for example, um, fruit is a good example. You want a really high humidity. So okay. you want, a small TD between evaporating and air off. So you're not taking the uh, amount of moisture out of that air every time it passes over the evaporator. Whereas if you've got something like dried fish, for example, um, you want a very low humidity because you want to keep that, that fish dry. So then you'd have a very wide TD on your uh, refrigeration system so that every pass of air that you take over the evaporator you are removing as much moisture as possible. So if, if we want a dry environment, we want a low um, TD. Is that we or sorry, or my, I just I, maybe I'm getting confused on that. <laughs> I was writing it down as you were explaining it. So so with with uh, just just for everybody listening with and, and myself yeah. with with high with a high humidity box, we want lower high TD. We want a low TD. Low TD. Because, okay. Yeah, because then for every sort of passive air that we're putting over that evaporator, we're not reducing the temperature that much. So we're not removing the moisture. Okay, gotcha. And then if we want um, low humidity, we want high TD. Yes. Yeah. So l let me ask you this then as far as fin spacing for different, like a low TD of app and a high TD of app, is the, is the fin spacing different on those? Um, Good, good question. I wouldn't say I'm an evaporator expert by any means. Okay. Um, generally, fin spacing would be something like uh, four millimeter fin spacing if you're on a medium temperature, and then maybe six millimeter fin spacing 
if you're sort of negative temperature. Um, I guess it depends on the, the size of the evap you want. Obviously, you can have wide fin spacing, but then you're going to need a very wide evap or large evap to do the same duty. So that, I guess, depends on the physical size you've got within your uh, walk-in box to physically fit the cooler, rather than would you have a wide fin spacing or a thin fin spacing. That more comes down to the amount of frost that we're going to build up on the fins itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's actually a good point about the fin spacing and, and the amount of space you have in the actual box itself. So that's sort of a good segue into install best practices for, and we can start with evaporator location. So where, where should we be installing the evaporator in, inside the box? If you had a single evaporator uh, inside a, a box, put it as far away from the door as possible. And the, the reason I say that is that every time you open that door, you've got the warm, humid moisture coming in from you know, outside. And if your evaporator is above the door, that moisture is going to instantly get picked up by that evaporator. So you're adding extra load to the system. Um, yeah, go on. I was going to say, <clears throat> I, I totally agree with you because I have a couple of boxes here now the, these are these are um coolers kept around four or five degrees celsius and every once in a while and and these these are right above the door so there's a big roll-up door that a fork truck can can drive in right above the door in the middle of the summer we've had a couple of occasions where there's a lot of activity in and out in and out all day and then we start mm -hmm. to build up build up some frost and which turns into ice on the evaporator and they don't have uh, they don't have any defrost timers on them because it's not really something that happens often. This has happened a couple of times. And what we've did to rectify this is we've put curtains in, door curtains yeah. in. So when the door opens up, the curtains are there. So if it's a single person, and, and this, this is one of the major reasons it was happening, a single person, one person would open up this huge roll-up door to walk in with one box in their hand instead of using yeah. the small man door at the other side. And this is what, what was causing most of this. So um, yeah. we installed curtains and that's alleviated the problem. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, but, you know, but I agree with you. Yeah. Sometimes it's incredibly difficult and you can only put the evap in one particular place, maybe because of access for the pipes or whatever. Um, so, yeah, but as far away from the door as possible, use door curtains, use, um, you know, door systems that might close the door again depending on on the size of the box things like that the yep. other thing that i've seen in 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 fairly large cold stores is a sacrificial evaporator so they'll just put a small evaporator in let's say the uh uh what would you call it um sort of small corridor so they'll they'll, they'll have one door and then a little bit of a space and then another door and they'll put a small evaporator in there just to sacrifice the moisture so it's not actually cooling the storeroom as such. It's just cooling like a antechamber, if that's a, a word that you understand. But that's mainly yeah. for the largest sort of, um, you know, food storage warehouses and things. Yeah, I've, I've seen this. Uh, one box in particular, it is a minus 40 box for uh, plasma. And mm. they have, a, and I guess, I think they called it a staging room or something like that, where you would go in, um, it would get rid of as much moisture as possible. But then when you go into the minus 40 box, I don't know if it was, if the, if this 
staging room, or I don't know if that's the correct term for it, but that's what they yeah. were calling it. If it if it was sized correctly or not, but because there was a ton of moisture that was building up on the evaporators still, and and the maintenance staff had to go in every once in a while with scrapers and and hammers to to, to hammer it off because what would happen is the the blades would get stuck on the uh, the evaporators because when they'd go into defrost um and, it, and that that ice would start to vaporize it would it would stick to the fan blade and freeze again and then when it go mm. to start it, it would get stuck so they had to come up with a maintenance plan and go in there once once a week and, and get rid of it this ice so that room wasn't really working the way it, it, it should have been and i don't know if it was because of a sizing thing or not but it, mm. it, it but i can see it working when it's done correctly for sure yeah 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 i've seen it on large plants with ammonia uh where they just have a, a small evap sometimes it's not even a forced um it doesn't have fans on it it's just literally some uh, you know pipes in the ceiling that literally attract the moisture um so diff different ways but yeah it, it's a solution to a age-old problem i guess of you know trying to keep the moisture off the main evaporators yeah no, I, I agree. I agree with keeping that moisture out because I've I've seen it wreak a lot of havoc. I've I've been to calls for stuck fan blades on on this one building I'm at today. Actually, every once in a while, there's a stuck blade because the just when it's in defrost and the way that the evaporators are cut, they kind of overlap each other. It's it's really weird the way they've done it. So when when one is running and the other one's in defrost. The one that's running is pulling the moisture from that one and it's collecting all <laughs> all around it it's just a bad a bad install uh but mm. but that's the way it was done and and we have to deal with it so a maintenance person goes in there once a week and clears the ice from that one too mm. uh but these are the things that we we think of after the fact a lot of the time so that's that's exactly mm. why you're here today so we can avoid this stuff so condenser condensing unit location where, where do we want to put that um, I, I guess in, in simple terms, as close to our evaporator as possible, so we've not got huge uh, lengthy pipe runs, you know, so we can uh, get the oil back to the compressor. The other challenge with, you know, the location of the condensed unit is obviously noise. Um, you know, we live in this built environment, so where can we put the uh, condenser? Sometimes it, it's not a choice of, well, I'd really like it here or I'd really like it there but that's the only place it can go. Yeah. Um, so that, that becomes a bit of a challenge and we, we all face that. Um, but for me, you know, I was on a site, uh, what we're talking now, probably five weeks ago, and there was a 90 meter pipe run between the evaporator and the condensing unit and the compressors were dying because they basically didn't have a great deal of oil in them. Um, and it was, you know, bad pipe work design, wrong pipe velocity, all the sort of things that could go wrong had gone wrong, but the only place it could put this condenser was 90 meters away. Um, so it's not ideal. Yeah, that's that's so, that's a that's a far pipe run. Wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And there was a good sort of what six meter lift uh, in height difference between the condenser unit, which was on, on a roof, and the evaporator. So he really struggled to get the oil back. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, there must have been a big difference between evaporator superheat and superheat at the compressor as well, too. Yeah, I mean, it was fairly well insulated, which, which okay. was good. Uh, he, he wasn't doing too bad. He was still maintaining a 20K, a below 20K uh, total superheat. So he wasn't doing too bad. 
um, but it was you know fairly cold outside, so that helps in in the in the winter time. Um, other places I've seen the comments units probably the same as you. You know they're not on bracketry, um, they're not level. Um, occasionally I see units just sat on the the earth. Um, which is never a good place because eventually they sort of sink one way or the other. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge, real challenge. So yeah, that so that that was the the next sort of point was was pipe run and size. So we we've kind of talked about keeping the pipe run as short as possible. Um, as far as sizing, how do you recommend we go about sizing our pipe run depending on how far we are apart? Um, there are lots of, you know, selection software. Again, uh, I think we, we live in the, the age of selection software. Um, yep. Within Danfoss Cool Selector, we've got a, a pipe sizing tool, so you can size your uh, pipes dependent on the duty. Uh, main thing is to understand the velocity that we need in a certain pipe. It's most important in, obviously, suction pipe because we want to get that oil that's been carried over by the action of the compressor back to the compressor. Um, you know, if we're talking a horizontal pipe, then you're looking between four to eight meters a second. If you're on a vertical riser, so you're, you're pumping your suction gas, your return gas back to your machine, which is higher, you want between, let's say, eight and 12 meters a second so that we entrain that oil. Um, liquid line velocity is an interesting one. I guess the, the, the same as me, you've been on sites where you've heard uh, like a, a, a noise or a whistle in the liquid line. And if you have your velocity more than about a meter per second, you can get noise in the liquid line. You can also get things like liquid hammer if you've got very long pipe runs because you've got a very high velocity there. Um, so really, it, it's, it's about keeping the right velocity, but it's also about good, you know, pipework design. If you've got a, a, a lift vertically, then make sure you use, you know, siphon or uh, U-traps so that we actually stand a chance of getting that oil back to the machine. Mm -hmm. um, and th there's there's many different ideas about th those traps and how how far yeah. the, apart they should be. What what do you what are your, your thoughts on that? I mean, if you if you're talking, let's say fractional horsepower, um, I would say you know every one and a half meter, two meter maximum. Um, if you're greater than a horsepower, um, you know, sort of four meters, something like that. Generally, people try to hide the traps. Uh, if you're going up the side of a building, um, you know, basically a, a good rule of thumb is that every uh, floor level put a trap. That was always the rule of thumb that I was taught, which was, uh, you know, you're sort of talking 10 feet, 12 feet, which is three, three meters, four meters, something around that. Um, but that only works so long as you also have the right velocity in your pipework, because the idea of those traps is that as you bring that vertical riser up, that oil is entrained, brings it up to that U-trap, stays there. Then as the, the suction gas goes through it with the right velocity, it then picks it up to the next U-trap and you know so on as it goes up the side of the building. Um, but I think one of the challenges, Gary, nowadays is that I think good pipework design is, doesn't get passed down through the generations. 
when it's I want to run a pipe from here to there, that's the shortest route, and it just gets done. Um, uh huh. You know, so a bit of a challenge, I think. And things like sloping your suction back to your machine, um, that's the way I was taught, but I never see that on site now. Everything is, it's got to be, you know, nice and horizontal, which looks nice, but it's a sort of look over function, if you like. We did some training this morning on flaring with my apprentice, Lucas. Now, I was showing him how to flare with a manual block, and then we checked it with a flare gauge, and then I was showing him how to flare with the battery-powered NAVAC, the NEF6LM. So the manual block, we followed the instructions to the T, and with the manual block, it did not pass the flare gauge test. It was interesting to see this. And then we did a flare with the, the NAVAC, and right away you can see the difference when you look at both of them. The NAVAC is wider, right, it's beefier, and it passed the flare gauge test with the flare gauge sort of block. It's got the different sizes you put the pipe in. If it goes through, it didn't pass. If it sticks, it passed. It's large enough. It's beefy enough to, to get over that flare and, and help prevent leaks. So just goes to show you guys, some of the tools that you use might not be the best. And you have to verify that the tools are actually working properly. And I bet you nobody's done that with that flaring block before. Well, maybe they have, but we did it today and, and we sort of exposed something on that block. I'm not going to name the name of it, but we exposed something on that block and the NAVAC performed really, really well. So just goes to show you these tools. If you're doing a lot of flares, guys, if you're on big projects, VRVs, VRFs, this tool is really cool to have because it makes repeatable, perfect flares every single time. Now, I did a little video last week about the Testo 55i because a lot of people are confused about why there's no display on it. There's no display because Testo figured out that techs were going around with their analog manifold, taking the gauges off and putting their smart probes on it and turning it into a smart probe analog. Um, smart probe, sorry, a smart probe manifold. And Tesla's like, wait a minute, we can build that. So that's why they built it. And techs are gravitating towards it that you like, like to use apps and, and digital tools. So it's a very cool one, very unique one. And I think it's industry changing. So that is the Testo 55i. These, these things are available at True Tech Tools with your 8% discount code using code KnowItAll. The blue on app, guys, what can I say about it? Tons of manuals, 30,000 techs on there. And tech support 24 7 tech support free two minute wait time is what they're offering through their through their app and if you guys follow blue on on instagram they do this live thing every once in a every once in a while is buckle up with with mike and brian and basically they answer questions and w the audience out there is trying to stump them and these guys are very knowledgeable and <laughs> they get a lot of these these questions like off the top of their head there's no research it's just discussion so if you're on instagram and you follow blue on watch out for their buckle up series because it's pretty cool guys so let's get back to john and walk in boxes as far as insulating the pipe what um i mean insulation comes in all different um i guess thicknesses and i guess for me like the supplier always says what well, what thickness do you want do you want three eighths you want half inch you want three quarter like how do we 
go about choosing our insulation and, and the thickness we want to use? Mm, good question. And I, I could only sort of comment, Gary, from my 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 days previously outside of Danfoss working for uh, a wholesaler. And depending on the humidity of the location of the pipe, there was a Pacific chart that you would look at your, let's say, pipe temperature, ambient temperature, humidity, and it would then tell you what thickness you wanted. Um, you know, generally, I've always gone on the uh, the point if you're on a, a high temp or, or a medium temp, sort of three eighths half inch, um, and if you're you know, like a deep freeze, minus 28, minus 30 C. Uh, for me, I'd always go three quarter, but I guess we live in a commercial world as well. So, you know, I, I don't often see three quarter. I normally see half inch. Um, yeah, that's the sort of best uh, answer I could give you. I don't know what the official answer is from the wholesalers. I've never sort of gone to that level. I can just go on experience from, you know, years ago. My camera's gone a bit strange. Yeah, okay. I'll have to live with a fuzzy John. That, that, um, that's okay. Um, so so the, I, I guess my, my question is for you. Like, we have a lot of issues over here using um, the, the, the pipe insulation and the UV just breaking it down. So I, I've actually yeah. started experimenting with a, a coated type of, of uh, pipe insulation that has a jacket over it. And I used it last mm -hmm. week and insulated some some suction lines i actually went and ripped the other the old stuff off it just just ripped right yeah. off with my hands it was just it was all disintegrating in my hands and i think the birds like to to grab it to make their nests out of it because it's got that in, insulation factor in there so i ripped all that out and, I, and i'm and i'm i was really liking the uh the the coated stuff and it's not really that difficult to, to use either is that like the the, the coated stuff that you see on the air conditioning splits, Gary? Because um, you see it a lot in, let's say, warmer parts of the world, you know, the Med, Spain, uh, Australia, Thailand, places like that, where it's uh, white and then they put this reflective, like silver foil on it almost to keep the, uh, the, the, the temperature, but also the UV off it to stop destroying it or was this the uh i've also used in the past in my previous life um where it was like a rubber sheet i suppose that you actually cut and, and glued on top of the insulation or was this proprietary you know bit bit built built into the uh, length of the tube yeah, it's 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 called um, K Flex Titan. Is K Flex is the brand, and Titan, I guess, is the is the the, the sub brand with the coating on it. And and it's not mm. like it, it's. I guess it's similar to that mini split stuff, the white stuff, but it's black. Uh, it's 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 built the same as the like a, a, an Armaflex. I don't know if you guys have Armaflex yep. insulation, yep. but it, yep. it's the same material, but it's just coated with uh with a with a jacket on it. It's, yeah. it's already it's already it's already pre-built like that and you just gotta it That's depends it. on depends on how you're putting it on um i obviously i was working with a, a an insulate like a a system that was pre-installed so i had to cut it um that like a cut cut a, a slit down it and, and fit it on mm -hmm. but you could also slide it on no problem if you're doing like a, a brand new install yeah i've just put that on the uh, the pc now and yeah that that 
is a, a jacket over the pipe insulation, which is yeah very similar to the sort of white stuff. But you, you talk about the UV um, radiation, and it really does attack the insulation. The other thing it also attacks is the wiring. Um, and again, I, I spend a lot of time on site in this country and, and many others. But even in the UK, which I'd class as a cold place to live, um, you'll go to sites and you'll see exactly the same thing. You'll see that insulation is just basically turned to dust because of the UV. And the other thing that frustrates me is that people use tie wraps, cable ties to tie, you know, the, the suction together, the liquid together, and then the, the cables as well. Um, you know, nice and tight, so it looks like a um, row of sausages. So yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. Uh, really frustrates me because you, you're you're doing a, a disservice to that insulation as well because then it loses its properties. And in really bad cases, if you're on a freezer room, you'll get ice nuts every cable tie because that in, insulation is compromised. Um, which looks bad, but it also, you know, gives uh, heat back to the suction vapor as well. So there's, yeah. there's lots of, you know, an annoying things that people do with the, in, it with the insulation, definitely. But that that looks good. That looks good. I like that. Yeah, I, th I think it's going to be my go-to for a little while to try it out, and we'll, we'll see how how it does with the birds in the springtime. But it it, it really looks it it looks good when it's when it's on a system. Mm. so yeah. as far as electrical and controls go so i mean we can control a box and, and wire a box d different ways like i've seen i've seen um companies go in controls companies go in and put mechanical controls on there uh i've seen them go in and put programmable controls on there and what 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 should we do when it comes to i guess it depends on budget and how fancy you want to get but what are your thoughts on that I think it, it, it doesn't matter whether it is mechanical controls, a mechanical stat, mechanical time clock, or whether it's all electronic like that one there. Um, you know, to me, I don't really care how it's controlled so long as it's controlled correctly. Um, is, the, is the stat set right? Is the defrost termination set right? Is the time delay set right? All of that. I think is a much bigger issue than is it mechanical or is it electrical? Um, you know, small things like the uh, drip down time on a cooler or the fan delay on a cooler with electric defrost. Um, understand what it does and understand if you set it wrong, you're going to damage something at the other end. Um, so I think that that's more my concern is understanding what it's doing rather than is it fancy like that or is it mechanical? I don't think it matters. Um, it's just understanding it and making sure um, when you install it that you physically test it and make sure it does what it says on the tin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one thing that I like as far as electronic controls that um, sort of, I guess, an operational control like a thermostat for the, the box is I like to have calibration on the actual um, sensor itself because I've mm. gone to a lot of systems where the, the mechanical control is just, it's, it's just not maintaining yeah. the proper temperature and it's because it's not calibrated and you can't calibrate it. And I've had 
some electronic controls that had no calibration in them at all. And then I like to, to take those off and put something that has a little bit of leeway on either side. So if we ever have to calibrate to the correct um, temperature in the box, we can do so. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a, a, a good point. Um, and also for those customers who, uh, let's say, want it colder than it really should be and things like that, you can almost fool them uh, in the sort of dark art of refrigeration that it's actually colder than it actually is or something, uh, which is quite useful with the electronics, but maybe not a subject for today. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I've, I've actually had it's almost like a, a dummy stat on the wall for <laughs> a customer that thinks it's, it's just a mental thing. Um, yeah, I've had I've had to do that in the past just to just to long story. But yeah, I've, I've had to fake a sort of temperature calibration just just for for reasons beyond that it would take mm. too long to explain right now. But yes, I, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it just comes down to it, it, it's got to do the job that it's got to do, and make sure you understand what it's doing, and the effect that it has on you know the rest of the system. I think that is is one of the biggest challenges. I think is that people don't appreciate that if you do something at, on one bit of a component, it, it actually can affect something else. Um, you know, think things like the compressor, for example. Yeah. No, gotcha, man. Um, well, that, that was great, John. I appreciate your time today. And uh, I hope the audience takes in from this. And, and, and I know that refrigeration to a lot of air conditioning techs is something it seems a little bit foreign. So these conversations kind of help them sort of get in the into the right mind, mind, mind frame for it. Yeah, no, good. Always uh, good to talk and, uh, you know, talk about this wonderful world that we live in of refrigeration and aircon and HVAC and all that sort of thing. All right, guys, so that was some, some good info. And yeah, the audio is not as good as, as using Zencaster, but that's what happens when you have mobile interviews and we're on the go all the time. You guys know exactly how on the go feels, I'm sure, because you guys are in the trucks moving around from job to job. So that's my life too, and I'm trying to do these podcasts as I sort of move through my, my life in HVAC. I can't stress enough how important it is to have the evaporator away from the door. I've seen it too many times cause problems over the years. And if, if for somehow you can't, make sure you put curtains in after the door because that will really, really help. But even if you, you can move it away from the door, curtains help as well for uh, moisture infiltration, just uh, heat infiltration in general. And every time that door opens, it will help contain um, that heat transfer between the outside and the box. So anyway... That was great. John, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Until next time, guys, thank you to the Master Group. But I'm out. Happy HVACing. Check out master.ca. Hope you enjoyed the show. Follow HVAC Know It All on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else Gary feels like popping up. This has been a Two Smokes and a Coffee production.